Hello, good evening everyone. Welcome to LSC. My name is Robert Lowe and I am the Executive Director of Brismas and the Deputy Director of the LSE Middle East Centre. And it's a great pleasure on behalf of both to welcome you here tonight for this Prisma's Graduate Section Middle East Careers event. Um, we're delighted to see such a wonderful turnout. It's very heartening to see such huge interest, um, which shows it was a good idea to put something like this on for the Prisma's student membership. We have been thinking about ways to better engage and be of more use to the student members of the society. And this idea came up um, uh, at the end, towards the end of last year, that it might be helpful. So we're delighted to see such a strong turnout tonight. Um, we are looking for more feedback and more ideas about the work of Brismas and how we can help the students. Um, the student section president has just arrived. Um, Iman is here in the front row, so do speak to her or Francis, who's beside her, who's the Brismas president, or me or Emma, who you'll have seen on the door, who's running the event, um, or indeed Louise Hasey, uh, the Brismas administrator. We'll all be around afterwards and we'd love more of your feedback and ideas about what we can do for the student community um, interested in the Middle East in the UK. Before we kick off, just a couple of notices I have for you. The first is that the next Brismas event is one you're warmly invited to, which is the Brismas Annual Lecture. This is taking place on the 15th of February at SOAS, and the speaker is Hisham Matar, and he'll be speaking on Arab memory and bewilderment after the Arab revolutions. It has sold out, but we are able to release a few more tickets, so if you're interested, please go on the website and you can sign on to the waiting list, and you will probably be in luck for that event if you do so. The other notice, the other item is the Brisbane's annual conference. Some of you may have already submitted papers, but if you haven't and you're interested, you have until the 27th of January to submit a paper for the annual conference, which will be held this year in Edinburgh uh, on the 5th to the 7th of July. It's shaping up to be a wonderful event, so we do encourage you to come along. Even if you don't wish to give a paper, you're very welcome to come along um, as a delegate. I need to note that tonight's event is being recorded. Um, and now I will move on to our speakers. I'm not going to give full biographies because the speakers have to do that for themselves tonight because that's part of the point of, of this event. But in very brief, on my far right, we are delighted to welcome Anna Chernova from Oxfam. Then we have Mina Toxos, who is an emerging markets and country risk consultant. Beside Mina is my colleague from LSE, Courtney Freer. And then on my left is Dania Akkad, who works for Middle East Eye. Um, each speaker will speak for up to four or five minutes or thereabouts, um, giving you some thoughts on their own career development to date, which has led them to be such established and renowned Middle East specialists. And we welcome all your questions and comments and thoughts afterwards. We should have a good long time for discussion, uh, leading up to a close at around seven o'clock, when even more importantly, we can get onto the drinks and go outside for uh, a little drink and more networking out there. So do please all stay on for that also. Right, we'll kick off with Anna. Anna, please. Thank Thanks you. Thank you very much. Uh, very nice to be here. I'm bearing with a cold, so tell me if you can't hear me, if I need to be louder. Um, it's fantastic to speak to you guys because, uh, uh, as you know, this region is extremely important for the humanitarian and development sector. Um, Oxfam works in almost every country in the region, together with a wide variety of other international and local organizations, as well as foundations. I know that some people from the NGO sector are also here, so I will be looking forward to questions but also comments from them because the, the beauty about the NGO sector is the variety. So in the Middle East in particular, there is a huge amount of organizations from faith-based to um, traditional NGOs to 
foundations to local initiatives and activist groups, youth movements that are working in the region. So everything I say um, will apply primarily to INGOs like Oxfam and uh, other big organizations, but just keep in mind that there's a huge amount of opportunities and varieties as a way to contribute as well. Um, Looking from a careers perspective, what's going to be happening in the region in the next few years, and some of the things that uh, we in the big international NGOs are looking at, some trends and some uh, challenges that perhaps those of you that are studying this region would be extremely helpful in helping us solve. I would say uh, a big aspect is the combination of uh, a change in the humanitarian sector and the wider humanitarian system. As you move through this field, you'll find that uh, most of the money going into the region is humanitarian, but the issues are actually development and governance oriented. However, the money for that traditionally isn't there. At least that's what we are finding, particularly when we look at the role of women and women's political and economic empowerment in the region. Um, Therefore, opportunities sort of lie between NGOs, think tanks, which is one of the reasons I'm here, because I find the combination of the two extremely useful. But as you move around, you will notice that lots and lots of uh, uh, opportunities lie in consulting, analysis, uh, strategies, uh, localization of aid, better understanding the context that we operate in, and better engaging with different varieties of networks. One particular aspect, for those of you that uh, would have worked with uh, um, the Arab Spring issue, but also looking at countries like Egypt, is the shrinking civil society space that we're operating in. So that's a challenge that's worth preparing yourselves for. Um, since uh, you're um, studying something that I've uh, learned and I would encourage others to um, to remember is that uh, governments have long memories so if you have published a lot on different issues and you would like to work in these countries just be prepared that everything that you have put out there is being read um, and everything that you will continue to put out there as you're in the field will also be being read and uh, taken into consideration. So that's something to remember, uh, particularly if you're looking at working uh, with activist organizations and mission-driven organizations. Um, more broadly, I would say that um, lots of INGO opportunities are available in the Middle East. Um, language is a massive asset. Field experience is a huge asset. So I would encourage those of you that are interested in breaking into the sector to look at volunteering opportunities if, uh, if you haven't done so already. Um, a huge amount of analysis is needed, um, both in terms of regional approaches, but also transfer of experience and context and conflict analysis, which is something that I work a lot on now, so there are lots of opportunities to, to, um, to get involved. Something uh, in terms of trends that uh, we're also noting, uh, looking closely at what uh, DFID and what other big donors are looking at, is the privatization uh, element, so lots more collaboration with financial institutions, World Bank and others. An important trend is uh, looking at fragility rather than economic indicators. What we're finding when we conduct humanitarian response in the Middle East is a lot of these countries are middle-income countries and should 
should be able to handle even large uh, displacements and humanitarian issues on their own, but they can't. So a lot of questions we have to ask ourselves as INGOs is why are these states continuing to fail and what we can do about it. But there's wide variety. So Oxfam is a, is a campaigning organization. We take a lot of positions. Uh, we uh, advocate governments. We advocate uh, international organizations. Other organizations take a more uh, neutral stance. So it depends a little bit on what kind of things you're looking for. As you look around for what you would like to do in the Middle East, I would encourage to um, particularly pay attention to the organization's mandate, because I think that's the happiest combination that you will find, is if the kind of things you would like to do in your background uh, and the kinds of things the organization is doing uh, in the region or in a specific country that you're interested in, um, it's important that, that you get that combination right. Um, another aspect uh, regionally that's quite important is uh, peace and security, so lots more attention is being paid to that, not necessarily money, but political attention. Um, so lots of collaboration across sectors. We are finding ourselves working a lot between the nexus of uh, peace and uh, develop, uh, insecurity and development and humanitarian, lots and lots of uh, mixing of the two across the region. I think I'll stop here. If there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer. Thank you, Anna. Very helpful indeed. Mina, would you like to share your thoughts? Okay. Okay. Um, I'm um, going to speak um, about people interested in the finance track. So if you're interested in career in the financial sector. And first of all, um, besides the general critique of finance that um, uh, has become very um, loud since the global financial crisis, there are other reasons why you shouldn't go into finance, and I want to start with this. Uh, One is that as a job prospect, it is a very unstable sector. I worked for about 20 years in investment banking. I was made redundant three times. First time, I went to a bit of a depression. Second time, I needed a couple of stiff drinks. Third time, I just went along and got another job within two weeks. So it's a little bit unstable. Um, second is that you've got big egos there. So if you're a bit of a sensitive um, flower, it may not be the right place for you. Although there are many different kinds of jobs uh, in finance, so I, I, I will qualify that if people want to f- uh, explore it more. Now, if, I've, uh, if you're still interested, I'll tell you why you should go into finance. And the most important thing is that it's a very big employment sector. There are lots of jobs in finance-related activities. And generally, the pay is better. So um, you know, that's two very good reasons why you might want to look into this. Um, and uh, you know, despite, this criti- despite the critique, uh, after all, money makes the world go round. So um, you know, you can—you don't have to be part of a trading desk where people are swearing at each other or whatever, and making and losing billions of dollars, you know, in one day. Um, you can be part of a team that finances uh, development infrastructure. Or you can be part of a team that um, finances uh, small enterprises and help them to grow. Um, you can be part of a team that looks at how to make finance more accessible uh, so for rural, uh, r- r- you know, people who live in rural areas in Africa, for example, using mobile phones and so on. So it's a huge, you know, you, it, it, is, it is something where you, you think, oh, you know, I've really, you can feel quite satisfied by the fact that you helped. For example, I, I had one um, um, 
one job where we one project where we set up a telecom um, mobile phone. We funded a mobile phone in Afghanistan in the midst of the whole thing, and uh, it's it's it was a roaring success, and people could speak to their sisters and mothers and brothers and so on. Uh, so you know, it, it's all really uh, is it has got that side to it as well. Now, if that's all kind of interesting to you, it's quite exciting. You have travel. Um, and also there's this whole moral investing uh, side to it where, where there's funds that invest only in environmental things, funds that um, uh, make sure women are employed in the course of the, the project, etc. So there's a whole uh, – you can feed in certain moral aspects to it too. So I'm sort of trying to kind of say that it's not just a ruthless, um, uh, ruthless uh, sector to be in, although that, that aspect is very much there and it's all true. Um, now, how to do it, there's sort of four ways of getting into finance. Um, one is through direct uh, graduate programs that big banks uh, retail. You have to choose between whether you want to work for a retail bank, like mostly like Lloyd's or something, or you want to work for an international investment bank. And then there's a multilateral banks. And then there's central bank, of course. Central banks also um, uh, hire people. So to get into those, once you graduate, you look into graduate programs, and they're all excellent. They'll take you from one, one bit of the business to another and train you up for a whole year. And then you kind of decide where you want to end up. Um, quite competitive. You have to be really um, into the idea. Um, but that's one way in. The other one is, um, is to decide whether you want to be on what is called the buy side or the sell side. So the buy side is the funds. So if you don't go into investment banks and, and, and so on in their research departments that invest and lend to the Middle East, um, you can uh, work for funds, huge funds that uh, you know, gather money, um, investment funds, which then um, have research departments and, and, um, and so on. So for example, uh, there was an Africa Infrastructure Investment Fund that had been set up uh, a couple of years ago, which gathered money from investors to invest particularly in things, uh, in infrastructure projects in Africa. Um, the other thing you can do is you don't have to be in the front, what is called the front desk. You can be in the risk department, which is where eventually I thought I was much more comfortable uh, because I felt the front desk was a bit too much ego-driven. Um, and, and risk department is sort of where all the sane people are who try to control what banks do. Um, we're not always listened to, but at least we try. Um, so um, so we're, we're the ones who sort of say, you know, this is not a good time. You know, th there's far too much lending to this country. There's no way they're going to repay that, etc. Sort of we, we try to um, uh, uh, create a, a sort of an optimal uh, lending um, uh, profile for the bank. Um, the other thing is there's support industries such as that do research. The Economist Intelligence Unit that does country research. Oxford Analytica in Oxford that do research. You can go into these things. Uh, there are rating agencies, Moody's, Standard & Poor's, so on. These are sort of support uh, uh, industries where which uh, have huge research um, uh, groups. There's political risk consultancies which you can go into if you're 
angle is po- particularly political risk. If your angle is legal, there is sort of a huge, uh, and, and since the global financial crisis, a growing <laughs> number of jobs in regulatory, regulation of finance, things like compliance, making sure people don't kind of uh, do um, uh, um, things that they shouldn't be doing. You need a bit of a law angle for that. Um, and then there's a the big accountancy firms, Ernst & Young, Price, Warehouse Cooper, and so on, that have this kind of research angle. Then there's the pension funds that lend, um, insurance funds, uh, and, it, you know, it, so basically what I'm saying is that there, it's a very big sector, and um, it's, it's definitely worth looking into, but you need to find the right niche that suits you. Thank you, Minion. That was wonderfully informative and rich. <laughs> now, heaven forbid you should want to abandon all that and consider a career in academia. <laughs> Courtney's going to tell you how to do it and make a success of it. Well, we'll see. Um, so I'm Courtney. I'm uh, doing essentially a postdoc here at LSE. I finished my PhD just about two years ago um, at Oxford. And so I, I don't feel that I can speak with too much authority about how, how to get here because I haven't really gotten there. And, and this is one, one aspect of academia that can be frustrating is the impermanence of a lot of the positions straight out of your PhD. Um, oftentimes you'll end up with a one or two year postdoc position, which is fantastic and you don't have to teach, so you get a lot of time to research. Um, but then oftentimes you, you can't find something next, so you have to apply to a lot of grants and try to find the next step. Um, to Once you do land that tenure track position, though, it's, it's a fantastic life. My father is a professor, so the amount of time spent working at home in pajamas is very, very <laughs> impressive. Um, and, and one thing I, I think that's also great about academia is the, the flexibility and the, the freedom, um, that you're not just kind of stuck in a room writing papers. There's certainly a lot of that, but you're also going to conferences, you're out doing field work if, if you want to do that. Um, you also can take kind of consulting things on the side, so either with policy groups or with you know things like risk consultants will often come to, to academics and ask us to give our, our two cents, which is also uh, another way to supplement your academic income. Um, so that's, that's another aspect of it. Um, so I guess just to give you a sense of how I got here, um, I didn't ever think that I would be going into academia. I started out, I did my undergrad in Middle Eastern Studies and then directly after did a master's in Middle Eastern Studies. Um, this is largely due to the fact that I graduated in 2008, which was not a great time to look for jobs, but also because I, I wanted to improve my Arabic. And so I focused on my master's degree on doing a lot of Arabic courses, which I'm very glad that I did. Um, and then after that, I moved uh, to Doha to work for the Brookings Institution's Doha office. Um, and I worked there for about two and a half years as a research assistant. And I think doing that job for, for a think tank gives you a different perception of how research is done from a policy angle. And I think that informs a lot of how I do my research now because I work on contemporary issues that, that do have a have policy relevance. Um, so after doing that, though, uh, I decided I wanted to do my own research rather than kind of edit other people's papers, and I, and I ended up getting my own ideas about wanting to study the Gulf. And, and I'm happy to talk further in the Q&A if you want to ask about you know, my living and working in the Gulf. I, I had a fantastic time, really enjoyed my job, um, but in the end, was, was, uh, I'm happy to be in the UK now. Um, so, so I ended up uh, applying both to, to PhD programs, both in the US and in the UK. I had done my previous degrees in the US, but ended up choosing a UK um, PhD program 
um, because I, I didn't get into that many programs, first of all. I mean, that's the, the application process is a bit rigorous, so I had a choice between a U.S. school and a U.K. school and ended up at Oxford. And, and I think it was the right decision because essentially uh, in the Ph.D. programs here, there's no coursework if you have a two-year master's. So you can go directly into writing your thesis. So if you have a good idea of what you want to write about, it's fantastic. You go in, you write your thesis, and you come out and hopefully get a postdoc. So that's kind of how I ended up here and happy to talk about any any aspects of that further. Um, but I think the academic life is, is one where you have a lot of flexibility and a lot of freedom, and uh, you get to be called doctor quite a lot, which is a perk <laughs> in and of itself. So, yeah. Emily, thank you, Courtney. Great place to start on, on all of that. Now we move to media. <laughs> Hi. Um, I don't have... Hello. I'm Dania Akkad. Um, I work for the Middle East Eye, which is a, a website covering Middle East news. We think we compete with Al Jazeera, but Al Jazeera is kind of kicking us a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, I haven't prepared, you know, sort of a broad thing about media. I think, you know, you know what media is, you know, newspapers, you know, news sites. So I was just going to tell you a little bit about how I got where I got and just take any questions, you know, as we get to the q and I'd be happy to answer anything. But um, yeah, basically, I did my undergraduate and I graduated in 2003 and I studied anthropology um, just because I thought the classes sounded interesting. I literally went through and highlighted things that just sounded interesting and ended up with that degree. Um, but I always knew I kind of wanted to be a writer. And during the summers in my college uh, years, I did internships with newspapers where um, I was at such small newspapers, they actually let me go out and cover things. So I got to cover crime and courts and fires and all kinds of things. And I, I didn't get paid, but I got some clips. So I actually got things that I could put in a book and say, I wrote that. Um, so that's kind of how I got my start. And I knew when I left college, I really wanted to keep doing that. Um, so I worked in a wire service where I had to like stay overnight in a sleeping bag and just call up police stations and fire stations all over San Francisco and find out what was going on and sort of create a wire. So that was my first job and it was really tough because it was a lot of overnights and I didn't really sleep very well when I wasn't working. So from there I went to a newspaper and um, covered crime again and this time it was in Salinas Valley so it was a lot of gang crime and a lot of agriculture. So it's sort of an interesting combo of things. Um, and actually from there <laughs> I went to cover the lettuce industry, which, <laughs> which sounds totally unsexy, but actually it was really fun because there was an E. coli outbreak, um, which is not fun for the people who got it, but, <laughs> but it was really fun to investigate how it had happened because these farmers were covering things up, and so it was a really great time to be in the Salinas Valley. Um, I moved on to another newspaper, did more daily reporting. And I was in the newsroom one day. I, I didn't explain. I'm Syrian-American, but I'm from California, as you can, well, you can at least tell I'm American. Um, so I was in the newsroom one day, and I was, you know, working on something. And I saw, you know, over the ticker, there had been a bombing in Jordan. And I thought, oh, that's weird. There's, there's a war in Iraq. Why is there a bombing in Jordan? And anyway, long, very long story short, I, I came to find out that um, some of my family members had been involved in the bombing and, uh, and had been killed. And so I decided, well, gosh, I, I think I need to get myself to the Middle East and try to get my head around this, which is kind of, you know, the instinct of a reporter. So if anybody's really curious out there, this might be a job for you. So I took myself to Syria. I got to know my family a little bit better. Um, I tried to learn some Arabic, which was very hard. <laughs> um, and I worked there as a, as a journalist. Um, and um, from there, I, uh, I came to England because I met somebody I really loved, and I thought we should be together. 
together. So I came to London. I'll just be really honest here. <laughs> it's not always, you know, career path, career path. Um, so <laughs> it's just true. Um, I got my master's at SOAS in Middle East Studies. And part of the reason I wanted to do that was because I was reporting in Syria and I, I could do stories about, you know, I don't know, black magic in, in the souk or something. But I, I didn't know the politics very well. When I showed up in Syria, I thought the bath party was about, you know, a bath. So I really needed, I, by the time I left, I knew better, but I needed some more grounding in that. I thought it was only right if I was reporting on the Middle East and working in the Middle East, I should know more about the Middle East. So I got my master's at SOAS, came to work at LSE with Bob at the Middle East Center, um, working on all kinds of things. I had sort of a roundabout career here. Worked at an NGO for a little while, and then finally got back into reporting at Middle East Eye. And um, I've done, you know, investigative reporting, which is kind of my secret love. But right now, I'm the opinions editor. So I basically spend every day just kind of. Uh, editing people's work, looking for what's sort of breaking in news, what I want an opinion on, and kind of living vicariously through through everybody that writes for me. And I think that's probably what I like most about this job. I get to kind of taste different worlds every day. Um, and I'm sort of ADD by nature, so it just sort of feeds that, and, it, and it's great. I get to sort of live vicariously all the time. So any questions you have, I'm happy to answer them. Thank you, Dania. Thank you for sharing your life with us. It's very precious. Um, thank you all. Those were four wonderfully diverse, but I hope rich and useful presentations to kick off discussions tonight. We still hope to be joined by a colleague from the Foreign Office, but he did warn us he might be slightly delayed, so we hope that Nick will still be here. But we do have a colleague who may be happy to answer questions on working for Foreign Office or the government, if you wish. So do, do propose those if, if any of you are interested in that. Just before we kick off with questions, I think we would find it very useful from up here to find out a little bit about you. Could we conduct just a quick poll? I would like to know how many of you are currently undergraduates? It's about, about 15 or so. How many of you are studying for a master's at the moment? That looks like at least half. How many of you are taking a PhD? Only a few. What, three, four, five? Are any of you not studying currently? <laughs> that's, that's very useful. Thank you very much. So, at least half, probably the majority are master's students uh, with a good representation from undergrads. We will now kick off into, into questions, comments. Uh, do ask anyone on this panel anything you'd like at all. Uh, we have half an hour. Uh, we have roving microphones, so please wait for that because it's been recorded, so we need to pick you up. And we'll take the first question from. Very shy. Well, you're not going to make it in your career if you don't put yourself forward. There's one at the back there. Yes, thank you. Hi, um, I'm Rita. I'm um, currently doing a graduate diploma in law in University of Westminster. Um, my question is for the first person who was speaking. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, just asking um, about Oxfam and sort of Oxfam's targets in the Middle East in general. So having, I mean, I'm from the Middle East myself. I'm Kurdish from Iraq. Visited home um, a few years ago. And the situation is what it is. Everybody knows the situation of the Middle East. There's no point of lying. We know what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Iraq. And one of the questions that sort of 
is in my head while coming to this event is we have expats working in these countries without knowing any Arabic, without knowing what's going to happen in the Middle East in the future, securitizing their own careers in the region, having no knowledge of politics of that region at all, having no family or any further interest in these countries, yet having this passionate will of working there and having this sort of idealistic thing of somehow saving these people, making long-term projects, um, a short sorry, short-term projects, um, doing something like building a community school or something, then leaving it and not thinking about who's going to sustain that school, what's going to happen to it in the next 20 years, who's going to be teaching there, do these people know any Arabic, do they know any Kurdish, do we know the needs of these people? My question is, what is Oxfam or other NGOs on the ground doing? I mean, you're saying diversity is, is a good thing. You're saying that it's a good thing that there's several NGOs on the ground. But I would actually argue the opposite. I would say, well, actually, they should be cooperating and they shouldn't be securitizing jobs. And actually, instead of doing NGOs and rushing into the ground, perhaps we should educate ourselves about the Middle East before rushing in there. And I think it's an important point to raise. I, I, I'd just like to hear your contribution and, and just sort of see what is the, the reality on the ground. What, what is it that you sort of see to be getting out of there? Thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you very much indeed. And I don't want to take sure. that now while it's hanging. Yep, thank no you. problem. So um, absolutely very valid points on all accounts. Uh, a big problem for the sector in general. I would say that there are lots of people, especially in the humanitarian sector, because it has a very short uh, life cycle, quick response. There's lots of people who move from region to region who, when they move to a new humanitarian mission, they don't know the context, they don't speak the languages. There are other people who do. So for, depending on what the uh, theory of change is for the organization. So I can speak for Oxfam. Oxfam's position is essential services, whether it's a humanitarian crisis or not, essential services to the public are provided by the government. So Oxfam steps in uh, through the humanitarian imperative when the government is unable to provide those services. Different organizations have different models and different ways of looking at it. So I would say for me personally, the wider civil society sector is the same. Civil society steps in when the governments fail and are unable to do so. Syria is a massive glaring example when not only the um, government has failed, but also there's large questions about the UN response in Syria and where we are as a sector as a result of the failure of, of, that, uh, of that response. So the sector is changing, it's growing, it's definitely recognized by lots of big NGOs that there needs to be lots of local context knowledge and lots of ways to interact. One of the things that um, our organization is working on, but others as well, is uh, the analysis side. So how do we operate in complex conflict settings? How do we make sure we recruit as many nationals from the context that we're operating in as possible. There are issues around that as well. Some of it is capacity, some of it is um, civil society space. When there's no tradition of uh, uh, professionalized community service like there is in some countries where there aren't in others. So the Kurdistan example is great because there's huge amounts of solidarity, so lots of people show up in Kurdistan volunteering their services and sometimes they're harmful and sometimes they're helpful. So I'd say it's definitely an interesting area to be looking at, and I would encourage to investigate and publish on those things as well, because the sector at the moment is taking on a lot of recommendations on how to improve, but definitely worth discussing further. Thanks. 
Hello, thank you. Thank you for a very thoughtful response. Nick, welcome. Welcome to Nick Alton from Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Who, uh, Nick is Deputy Head of Arabian Peninsula and Iran Department. Very grateful to you for taking the trouble to come up to LSE tonight. Would you like to say a few words and then we'll go back to Q&A now you're here? Yes, Thanks, of course. Yes, sorry I'm late uh, and I've got a bit of a cold as well, so apologies if I sort of sneeze on you at any point. Uh, you're having an interesting debate, so I don't want to sort of cut into it too much. I'll just say very quickly who I am and kind of what my role is at the moment. So, uh, as you said, I'm Deputy Head of Arabian Peninsula and Iran Department in the Foreign Office, so I kind of... Uh, I suppose I'm responsible for our policy towards the Gulf and towards Yemen, uh, which you're very happy to <laughs> challenge me on. Uh, if like. But that's not the purpose of tonight. That's so not the purpose of tonight. Maybe over a drink in a, in a minute rather than in this forum. Uh, uh, my background is that I was posted to, been posted to Damascus and to Beirut. Uh, I studied Arabic training, worked in the Cabinet Office for a while as a Middle East analyst. Um, and before joining the Foreign Office, I worked in the private sector for a bit and in the Foreign Office. Um, so that's sort of my background and where I got to. I kind of uh, very happy to sort of take questions and answers, probably is the easiest way of doing it rather than me yeah. sort of rabbiting on too much. Very good. Thank you, Nick. That's very useful. Let's take some more questions, please. Yes, gentlemen on display, Sandra. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, my name is Usman. I did a uh, master's last year in Middle East politics. Um, it's a question for Courtney. Um, in regards to, for example, you, you mentioned you worked for the Booking Institute. What tips could you offer in terms of someone who's looking to get into think tanks of that nature and what core skills should we be developing in order to have a chance of uh, succeeding? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good question. I, mean, I think one thing that uh, for the role I was in, which is research assistant, so not, not writing my own papers, but it was a lot of editing and a lot of writing. Um, and so that, that was crucial for me. And as well, the, the Arabic was, was really important because uh, I, my boss at one point didn't speak Arabic, and so if he needed to supplement from the Arabic news, I would be the one to do that. And so I'd say um, writing, editing, Arabic, otherwise... Um, you know, like publishing is always good, and if you have it in your applications that you've published certain things on on political topics, um, I will say for Brookings, there's the application process is it's a bit intense. Um, so the first round is a normal interview, and then you have a writing test in English and a writing test in Arabic, um, and then an editing test in English and an editing test in Arabic, which you don't get insecure about your Arabic until you have to edit someone else's. Um, so that, that was it's, it's pretty intense. So that, I, that was in 2010 at Brookings Doha. I, I know there's still tests to a certain extent of, of, of those types today, but a lot of it was, a lot of my job was reading, translating Arabic, summarizing things and then also a, a ton of editing. So, and I think that also was really helpful to get my own writing in better shape. Can I add that, Usman? I worked at Chatham House here in London for nine years for the Middle East programme, and I saw many people coming through trying to get employment in the think tank world at Chatham House and the other think tanks in London as well. And there's much to be said for having the Arabic skills, obviously, for having knowledge of the region, for having done the right degree, for being able to write, publish, present yourself. But the networking is absolutely crucial. Who you know is so valuable. We can't get away from that. And being incredibly persistent as well. We would turn people down one, two, three times. They'd come back a fourth time. They'd turn up. And you'd think, you're really keen. And then they'd get an internship or they'd just start helping out. And that can often be a way in. And I've had colleagues who started like that and then became full-time employees in somewhere like Chatham House for, for a number of years. It can really work. 
Tanya was there herself for a while. How did you get in? Oh, um, <laughs> transcribing uh, tapes. Exactly. <laughs> so any job going at all, just, just be incredibly positive. Don't turn down anything if you're keen to get into an organization. Just show them how enthusiastic you are for their work. And other opportunities uh, can, can turn up. Even take a job you don't necessarily want, but you like the organization. And colleagues who take job in, uh, jobs in events or in publications or even central service divisions of an organization, and then they would move sideways into the area they wish to work on. It, it can work. You just have to get yourself known. It makes a big difference. Next question, lady here in the front, please. Mike's just coming. Hello. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm Sarah. My question is for Anna. Um, so I'm a psychology student, and I'm looking for a master's in international development. Um, so I wanted to ask. Um, you're working in Oxfam, and as I know, they do that stuff. So what what kind of stuff do you actually do in the Middle East? That was my question. We're a popular organization yeah. today. Um, so the, um, for Oxfam in particular, uh, what makes it interesting is there's a massive mandate. So because we hold governments to account to delivering essential services, we fight inequality, uh, we work for women's rights, uh, we deliver essential humanitarian services, so all kinds of water and sanitation uh, or emergency relief, uh, depending on the kinds of things that you would be interested in. I would say if you're looking at the Middle East today and what will be happening for the next few years, there will be a lot of work in protection issues, so all kinds of addressing root causes of migration because that's a donor priority, so that's a sector-wide uh, issue. There's lots of work in governance and social cohesion, so not just Iraq, but lots of other places where there's more and more uh, collaboration between organizations like Oxfam and peacebuilding organizations trying to help communities recover from conflict. So if you're looking into those areas, that's, that's very useful. So I would encourage to look at some of the um, areas around particularly refugee protection or displacement but also looking at some of the campaigning work because a lot of what we do is collective action. We work a lot with local movements across the region and work with them to hold their own governments to account. So that's where helping us uh, collaborate with these movements and analyzing and putting together campaign strategies is also useful. Thank you, Anna. Next question, please. Uh, lady there in the third row back. Thank you. And then you, sir, in front. Hi, my name's Dean. I'm a master's, uh, conflict resolution master's from King's. Um, I'm really curious, uh, and this question goes to Dania, how do you make yourself a competitive candidate? Um, how do you make yourself stand out as an aspiring journalist, especially when you don't have a master's in journalism? <clears throat> okay, well, first of all, I'd say don't, don't get a master's in journalism. Really don't. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Your clips are worth the master's. So what makes you stick out is if you've written things before that you can show, or maybe you've produced a podcast on your own, or just something you can show for, for your skills that you have. Um, persistence is, is really good because you're going to have to be on the phone calling people, harassing. So I often have people just constantly emailing me, please meet with me, please. You know, and if people do that, I, really, I think that's something you can do to stick out. Um, language, language for the Middle East. I know when we hire people, if they have Arabic and if they have French and Arabic and if they have some Farsi as well, that's pretty amazing. So um, language and... Yeah, and in terms of getting that experience, um, you know, to get those clips, I would say make your own opportunities. So try to pitch op-eds places or start your own blog or, I don't know, just look for opportunities where you can produce your own stuff. So does that... Yeah. 
very nice. Direct question, direct answer. Thank you. There's a gentleman just right in front there as well. Thank you. Hi there. My name is Ibrahim. I study Arabic and politics at Soaz. Uh, my question is kind of for Nick, but kind of for everyone else as well. It's I, I, I wonder how much how important is if kind of somebody has a mastery of uh, kind of an Arabian and Arabic dialect, um, how how that. How, does that kind of benefit you in a certain way to, to a certain position? Let's say one uh, is kind of very familiar with the Yemeni dialect, and because Yemen has become um, such a, uh, a hot spot and the humanitarian situation is likely to kind of worsen, um, does that, how do you kind of present yourself as someone who kind of has a mastery of dial, uh, like Arabian dialects to kind of help you move uh, in, 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 in your search for a career? Thank you, Ibrahim. Nick, do you want to offer thoughts? I mean, I think in the Foreign Office, uh, there's still quite a value placed on generalism, actually, at the moment. Uh, so although, for, my, to, for me personally, I think, to work in the Middle East, you have to have a real understanding of the history of the area, you have to have good language skills. For the, for the Foreign Office, it's useful to know what the UK's history in the Middle East is and, and how we kind of played into the history of a lot of the countries in the Middle East, which we often forget. Uh, but specific dialects, probably, and specific kind of very narrow uh, specialisms probably less valued than they should be uh, in the Foreign Office at the moment. Um, although there are different routes in, so there's, there's a sort of... So the Foreign Office recruits UK-based staff uh, who are UK nationals uh, and who are posted uh, as part of the generalist stream. But then you can also apply to embassies directly to work as a local staff, and there there would be a lot more value placed on kind of specialist skills like local dialect. Um, but I think for... For, for, for the, the general intake for the Foreign Office, is still quite a generalist-type uh, priority placed on skills. Well, the language question's quite important. It's probably worth we stay on it just for another couple of comments. Mina, uh, come in on this. Absolutely. Um, I think language is absolutely will make you uh, stand out, um, the, you know, even if you just have some conversational um, ability to get the gist of a... Uh, a news report from local papers and so on, all that will make a huge difference. I mean, I, um, I, I speak Turkish and I can sort of, I can see that people who don't speak Turkish write about Turkey all the time and they just repeat what everybody else says because no one actually goes and reads and tries to find out what is really going on there and that, give that additional bit of understanding. So, you know, the language is, is, is primary um, if you want to work. I mean, I, I think for those of you working on um, the Middle East, you know, the, there's such a lack of understanding. I mean, the, the gap between, you know, what's going on there, you know, uh, no one really knows uh, anyway, uh, you know, uh, e- even the Kurdish people who live in, you know, I- Iraq or Syria don't really know what's going on because it's so complex, it's changing every hour and so on. So it's so difficult to write about it that, um, I, I mean, I, I sympathize with what that person said up there, but at the same time, I think it's really important for people uh, who, who, are, who are based in Europe or America or wherever to get out there and get an understanding of things and learn the language. So I think that if you go there with Oxfam, be it, you know, it still uh, gives you some further understanding. So it's really important. 
According to someone from deep Georgia who has learnt the language, how does <laughs> um, it work? Well, I, I would say I, I wish I was better in dialect. I think I made the kind of opposite decision and focused pretty much exclusively on FUSA. And then in terms of field work, it's not that useful. Um, I was told in the field that I spoke like the Quran, which is not great. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, and, and you can't communicate often. I was out. That's I, good. <laughs> I was, when I was younger. No. But um, when I was in Kuwait recently doing field work in, you know, kind of tribal areas, not, not in the city. And, and it was really difficult. I, I had a Kuwaiti friend with me who helped because the dialect, I don't know the dialect. And so in that way, you can get kind of a scoop on the ground that, that other people don't have access to. So I think it's really important. Just to add to that, I, mean, I have to fully agree. I mean, I think the way that Arabic is often taught, which is to talk, teach Fusa and then say learn the dialect, I couldn't disagree with that more. I think you enter it through a dialect and then learn Fusa if you want to afterwards. I just think uh, it's, it, you, you don't get any confidence built when you, you go out somewhere, try and speak Fusa, and people sort of go, what, what the hell are you talking about? You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's like coming to the UK learning Shakespeare in English yeah. and trying to, yeah, trying yeah, to operate yeah. that way. <laughs> so I couldn't endorse that more. Learn the dialect, then learn Fusa if you want to. Very interesting and important point. Is there anyone here studying Arabic? And if so, which are you studying? You're doing FISA, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> and which way around do they teach you? Yeah, yeah this is the traditional teaching method. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the way. And they always teach you terms like uh, the United Nations before they teach you useful words as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How to order something. Yeah. What's the problem? Right. Any more questions on language or anything else to pick up here? Lady here and then beside you. Thank you. Um. Hi, I'm Najane. I'm doing masters here in IR. Um, so I have two questions. Uh, first, for Courtney, um, if someone is interested in pursuing um, the career in academia, and, and um, I went straight away from my undergrad to doing masters in here, do you suggest uh, taking a gap first, uh, working in a field, and then pursuing PhD, or um, is it beneficial? Or if you really want to know that you want to pursue your um, career later on in academia, to go straight away. So this is my first question. My second question is for Anna, and I want to know. Um, if Oxfam, Oxfam is interested in any research regarding um, Egypt, and if it is, um, what specifically? <laughs> As you know, the situation right now. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. We have a few questions building up, so we'll take one or two more. Just sorry, just next to you on your right. Sorry, pass, oh. pass it back, please. Um, hi, I'm Apana. I do French and Arabic at UCL and SOAS. Um, my question is regarding the level of Arabic that you should get to if you want to work in the Middle East, because a lot of us that will leave an undergrad doing Arabic, it's okay, but it's not great. Is it worth going out to the Middle East and spending one or two years to get to that advanced level that you need for a job, or is it okay going in with intermediate Arabic? Do you know what kind of job you want to do? Um, kind of government and policy and NGO type of work. Great. And then there's a lady up the top. You just want to take her quickly as well. And we'll do these three, four as they become. Thank you. Um, hello, I'm Camilla. I'm studying humanitarian emergencies here at the uh, LSE. Um, I don't really know how the UK government bodies interact with each other, but I have a question for Nick. So, and since Anna from Oxfam is here, um, I think you could have like two good perspectives. So I know that Oxfam recently has been uh, launched a huge campaign to support um, um, 
people to sign a petition for, against um, the selling of weapons to Saudi coalition to stop the bombing of Yemen. So I was wondering, uh, what is the stance of UK government on this topic? What, what is being doing? What is what is, what is being done? Question, not, not career linked, isn't it? <laughs> Why do you no. double him afterwards at the drinks reception? You <laughs> might get a word to answer as well. <laughs> um, let's let's just take what we've got now, especially the career focus questions, because time is is upon us. Um, Courtney, do you want to start with? the value of a gap year in an academic career? Yeah, uh, No, I, th I think it's um, it's quite useful. I did the same. I did my undergrad and then my master's directly after, and largely because uh, of, of Arabic. So I had done two, only two years of Arabic in my undergrad and then felt that that wasn't enough for me to get a job. So I, I did a two-year master's to, to get my Arabic to a higher level. Um, but I think I don't, I'm not convinced that I would have gone into academia if I hadn't taken time off. Um, and and when after I finished my master's, I applied to everything. I applied to consulting, to NGOs, to think tanks, and ended up in, in a job that suited me quite well. Um, and I think that through doing that, I, I realized, A, that, that I, had, I had the ability to write my own stuff, not just to kind of edit other people's things, and B, that I, I had an idea that I, I was really passionate about and, and wanted to pursue. And I think mm -hmm. if you have a, an idea of what you would want to write on now, then that's, that's great. But I didn't really know that until, until I lived in the Gulf for, for a few years. And then I realized, you know, no one's really written on on the Brotherhood in the Gulf, so I'll do that. And that that kind of is how it it came about. Thank you, Courtney. Anna, do you want to talk about Egypt? Um, sure. Excellent question, and absolutely a, a key country for a lot of us looking uh, at activism in particular, but women's rights and lots of other social issues. Um, I would say the biggest issue at the moment for NGOs that are trying to work on Egypt or in Egypt is the situation with um, operational environment for us one way or another, either if us working inside the country or supporting civil society inside the country. So some of the research questions we're asking ourselves are, how do we support governance inside Egypt? How do we do that in the current political environment when there's lots and lots of restrictions uh, in to have foundations or INGOs supporting Egyptian civil society and how to sort of protect that civil society space in the current political environment. And so Egypt's not alone. I specialized for many years on Russia. So it's the same, same, tra same trajectory there. Um, also in India, not so popular to fund uh, things from abroad. So in that sense, it's not a unique, uh, unique situation. So lots and lots of questions that definitely need answering there, but a lot of it is also political will and geopolitics and, and macroeconomic trends. I'd say for Egypt as well as for other countries, it's a question of also inequality and governance. These are distribution of wealth are some of the things that we're looking at and ways for uh, civil society to hold governments to account in that particular environment. Um, just a quick comment on Yemen. I just wanted to say that in terms of when I say diversity in the region, this is really also what I meant. When I joined Oxfam to work on, on the Middle East, I didn't think I'd be working on, you know, UK arms exports to Saudi Arabia. So that's for me, was quite an interesting, uh, an interesting twist. So that's definitely worth uh, looking more at some of these wider campaigns and see how you would like to contribute. Anna, thank you. Nick, you don't have to say anything about UK policy in Yemen. That is up to you. But please, would you say something about the level of Arabic which might be useful to serve in government? I'll neatly deflect the policy questions later. So, I mean, the level of Arabic, I mean, I think uh, having any level of Arabic is a great entry point. Uh, but, you could, I mean, I don't think you 
as a non-native Arab speaker, I don't think I'm ever going to get to, to, to a very good level uh, that, that's going to be fluent. So I think continually practicing, and uh, you've got to keep going with it, keep going with it. And spending some time in the region is essential to get to a decent level, uh, I think. Just very quickly on policy, I'm not going to address the policy point, but, but I will say something around the way that um, NGOs and think tanks can challenge effectively uh, UK government policy, which is, I mean, I think it's my role as a, as a UK diplomat to to listen to challenge and to engage with it. And if I can't defend our policy particularly well, then maybe it needs rethinking a little bit. And I think the best way that uh, policy is challenged is when uh, NGOs and advocacy groups come up with constructive uh, thoughts on, on ways of doing things differently, uh, not just criticising but coming up with other, other suggestions. And some of the best advocacy that people at like Oxfam do is when they come up with alternative ways of doing things. And so I think it's a big part of government to interact uh, very fully on those kind of discussions. Uh, otherwise, we make bad policy if we don't listen to challenge mm. to it. Thank you, Nick. Excellent point. We have a few minutes left. We have more questions. Right in the middle there, please, Sandra. And then in front of you in the green jumper. Thank you. Please. Hi, my name is Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Um, I'm doing a master's at And could you just pass the microphone in front of you, just in front, forward, there we go, thank you, please. Uh, hi, I'm also studying conflict resolution at King's College. Um, there are a lot of uh, track tool initiatives going on right now, what are conflict, conflict resolution initiatives? Uh, I'm from Syria and I'm, I'm interested in those in particular regarding Syria. But do you know if there are any postgrad opportunities that can get me involved or get the other similar tracks involved in, in such initiatives? And now, question to Daniel, and maybe also next Thank you very much. Um, and then just next to you, there's a lady as well. I'll take you as well, and then we'll go up to you at the top. Thank you. Very good. Nick, do you want to tackle those which pertain to you from that? Sure. So, I mean, introducing to the Foreign Office, so you're right, the fast stream is the sort of standard uh, mainstream routine, but it's not the only one. Uh, the, and there's, for people doing undergraduate courses and postgraduate courses, intern routes in. For those who have done postgraduate courses, there's specialist streams that we have. So we have a part of Foreign Office called Research Analysts, whose job it is to kind of be deep experts in the field, and they generally take postgraduate or PhD uh, people. Yeah, they are. They're all jobs are publicised on the civil service jobs website, uh, and so you should be able to find them. The specialist jobs don't come up very often because people stick in them for a very long. The reason they're deep experts is they don't move on very often. They do come up every now and again, so it's worth checking back. Uh, there's also, as I sort of mentioned earlier. Uh, 
there's also locally engaged jobs, so you can apply directly to embassies around the world uh, to, to, to work locally engaged. It's a different type of work, uh, and it's one where you'd have to fund your own kind of accommodation and things out there, but it's another routine. Uh, but it picks up on the point earlier, really, there's a sort of persistence issue here that, you know, just mm-hmm. keep trying at it, keep going at it, and there's, there's a number of different routes in. And I often think, you know, you might think you're not heading in the right direction or doing what you're wanting to do, but if it's still doing interesting stuff and you never know what's, what, how useful it's going to be later down the line to kind of give you something else on the CV or something else for an interview to, to get where you want. Uh, but do keep checking back on the website. It is, it is the place that these things are advertised. Oh, Arabic as well, just in the field and speaking. I mean, personally speaking, others have different views. Um, I think speaking is the most important thing because it means you can get out and talk to people uh, and understand what's going on around you and, and interact and make friendships and things like that. So I think that's the most important thing. But uh, being able to at least just read newspapers and journals and things going on, just to get a gist of it at least, is quite important. But personally, I think if you're going to prioritise one skill over the others, it would be the speaking aspect of it myself. Yeah, I agree as someone who struggled to learn and many other non-native speakers find this. You you cannot speak very well. You may be able to get somewhere with the other skills, but few people or fewer people have the the spoken ability, so that's perhaps more valuable. And you only need the written necessarily if perhaps you're going to be an academic anyway. I mean, really very good level of of, of written or reading skills. So I think Nick's got a good point there. Danny, do you want to come in on that? Or Syrian conflict resolution stuff, that's up your street. Yeah. Hello, fellow Syrian. Nice to see you. Um, uh, I don't personally know a lot about conflict resolution for my career, but my husband is a mediator in the Middle East, and I know the way he got his job um, is just kind of going after other mediators that he admired um, and stalking them and just showing up at conference. I mean, really, I mean, really, he did. And and honestly, this is this is maybe a decade back. And he was in, I met him in Syria because he was there just trying to learn Arabic because they had told him learn Arabic, and he now works for one of the people he stalked. So, really, and we can talk. I, I'd be happy to introduce you to my husband. You can stalk him. Um, <laughs> and um, the other thing is, I think a lot of track two happens through um, NGOs and think tanks now. I don't know. For Syria, I know, um, I think Chatham House was involved a little bit somehow. I think, um, who else is doing things on Syria? I know Charles Lister in D.C. was doing some sort of track two thing. Brookings. Brookings. So I think, you know, think about think tanks um, and trying to kind of find the person there and just going to meet them in person and and explaining why you want to do and be ready to do menial things. It won't start with, you know, holding hands and, you know, but I'm sure you know that. <laughs> Let's move up the top of a question at the very back, waiting patiently. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tim from, sorry, SOAS, <laughs> uh, doing Master of Miller's Politics. Um, just wondering, this is a question for Nick. Um, what, for people wanting to get into policy, what is the biggest factor that turns people either towards public sector or towards the think tanks? Like, what if people are undecided, what do you find being the decisive factor that tips them one way or the other? Thank you. And is there still a question? Yes, at the side, Sandra. Thank you. And does anyone else have a question? If so, please put your hand up now. Is there anyone who hasn't had a question who's still got a question? Fine, we will take yours as well. Thank you. Lady up there, thank you. Hey, uh, I have a question for Amina. Um, I'm, I'm doing my Master's here in Political Economy, and I've been... Um, working and studying in the Middle East before uh, and in North Africa and I'd like to go into the direction of like risk analysis or like political economy analysis without going into a bank um, so could you a little bit elaborate on the possible pathways and career paths you could you could yeah. take in the sector Hold that Mina, we'll just take the last okay. two and then yeah. we'll take them all to round up the two in the front Emma just come forward to repeat questions again 
thank you. Sorry, just to respond to the last one, um, the specific question about Bloomberg, which is like a non-bank company that works in finance or does research, if that's also viable. Thank you. And a question? Uh, I was just curious about, well, what your, for all of you, what your advice is for kind of mature students who want to possibly pursue kind of careers in your field. Do, 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 do you think some, some, some careers are kind of not really tailored for mature students? Good question. And then the final question in the front here. Thank you. Um, my question is for Dania. Um, so in media, how do you really fact-check all the information you get about Syria or Iraq or all the Middle East? Mina, would you want to kick yeah. off? Yes. Thank um, you. Political risk analysis is, uh, I, this is really becoming the thing now. Um, uh, you know, geopolitical stress and tensions are increasing, so increasingly um, it's politics that's moving economics rather than the other way around. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of scope for this. Um, the, you know, the, the, if you don't want to go into the bank, that's fine. There's rating agencies um, which take in people who um, uh, look at political risk. But political risk consultancies also do. Um, and there's lots of them in the city. You know, you just uh, Google political risk in the city or something like that, and you'll get a lot of um, firms. Some of them are fairly small, um, but quite influential and, and well-known. Um, and uh, uh, the other thing is don't um, forget multinational companies. Uh, they will often have a, polit a political risk unit. Um, you, you know, Unilever is the, is the classic case, um, which um, has a whole kind of they, – they, they actually, you know, uh, they have factories and produce all over the world, sell all over the world, and they have a huge te research team uh, that um, sets up a rating model of uh, sort of political risk and, and, and so on. So um, a lot of these big corporates will also have units. Thank you, Mina. Anna, do you want to come in anything before we wrap up? Um, mature maybe, students? Yeah, for, for people sort of mid-career or people changing careers or doing degrees and master's degrees and things that maybe don't call it, like connect to their undergrads, I would say the NGO tracks are quite useful because, as you'll see from what's out there, what's being advertised to both consultancies and permanent positions, there's a huge amount of variation in the type of work people are looking for in the non-governmental sector. So definitely that's a useful track in terms of languages, for us, it highly depends on the type of job that you're applying for. We have positions that lobby the leagues of the Arab states and the GCC. For that, Arabic has to be absolutely perfect, and especially in, including Britain. We have positions that involve going out to the field and communicating with refugees. That, in that case, if you can't read and write perfectly, then that's not necessarily critical. So it depends, it depends on what you're studying and what kind of things you would like to be doing, and just to comment on the, on the Syrian Track 2 question, there's lots and lots of opportunities, lots of peace-building NGOs, but also lots of diaspora NGOs, Syrian NGOs here in the UK, but also in the US that are involved in the peace talks and are trying to, to develop meaningful conversations, so lots of opportunities there. Thank you, Anna. Courtney, is anything you want to wrap up with, maybe on uh, think yeah. tank versus government? Oh, uh, yeah, so, so I applied to, to both, um, and I mean, ultimately for me, I, I felt that, that the government jobs kind of required too much or a bit too controlling in terms of, you know, asking a lot about your personal life. And, and I don't know how it is in the U.S. versus the U.K., but a lot of, I mean, I would have had to write down every Facebook friend I have was not American, so that was <laughs> different. And I can't imagine what it would be like now. But, uh, yeah, so um, so that for me, it was, it was more having, having, I mean, of course, every think tank has its own kind of editorial line, at least to a certain extent, or a reputation of being center or center left or 
far right or whatnot. But I, I felt that there would, I would have more freedom um, in in the think tank world. And also, I didn't get the government job I applied to. But um, <laughs> so as, as far as the mature, I mean, in terms of, I don't know what, what qualifies as mature, but I, I mean, I went back to do my PhD after having worked for a few years. And, and I mean, the PhD is obviously an interruption in income, which is not super fun uh, when the rest of your friends are, are out being lawyers and doctors and making money. Um, so I think if you can get funding or if you if you have a way around that, that then it's it's fine and, and you can do it as, as late as you want to. And, and I also would kind of benefit from having been out of school for a while. So, so I think it, it all depends. Yeah. Thank you very much, Courtney. Nick, do you want to say anything about public sector versus think tank and also or mature students? Yeah, on the public sector versus think tank, that's a really interesting question. I, I came to the same sort of conclusion as you, I think, that um, uh, there's probably more stability in a government job. There's more kind of... Uh, there's, a, there's more of a career structure. But there's less freedom. It's more constrained uh, a bit. I mean, in terms of advocacy work as well, I mean, you are uh, working with decision-makers. You are kind of part of the decision-making process, so you have quite a big influence in that. But at the same time, you're a part of a collectivist model. So if, you, if your government doesn't... You're part of a government that doesn't you don't really agree with their, what they're doing, it's a very limited scope for you to kind of uh, openly disagree with them or, you know, you can challenge it internally, but to openly disagree or to publicly kind of um, challenge it is quite difficult. So I think that the NGO kind of uh, think tank world probably gives you more freedom, more scope. You're also often close to delivery mechanisms. So Oxfam, as well as being an advocacy, for example, or as well as being an advocacy group, also often delivers services physically on the ground, which, is, which gives it a, a, a different dimension to <coughs> government, which is probably more segmented. The policy-making is slightly different to the delivery, slightly different to other bits of it. So uh, they're quite different models, but I think it's a shame in the UK system. I think the US system does it a lot better. There's a lot more fluidity between the two, mm-hmm. and I, I wish there was more in the UK system, because I think we could benefit from that more. Uh, maybe it will change uh, in the future. Mm. Nick, if I push you, because you're perhaps slightly unusual in that you've been elsewhere, you've, you've worked in other parts of government and the private sector, and then moved into the Foreign Office without going through, you know, as a graduate. In no, I did. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I kind of had a sort of, uh, a few years in the private sector. I worked so in it's NHS, sabbatical. And then I, no, and then I thought, oh, I'll try something else. So it was, uh, uh, no, that was a sort of very traditional, uh, a traditional routine, I suppose. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, it didn't. Doesn't help. I'm afraid in this context. Entering later in life. Yeah, that's you, exactly. anyway. it's not unusual to do that. Actually, just to pick up the point, it's not unusual for people, certainly in the Foreign Office, I don't know about the rest of the government, mm-hmm. to do some other things before applying to the fast stream. So, yeah, I was in my sort of late twenties before I did the fast stream, and others are, you know, in their thirties, forties, even. Right. That's useful to know, maybe. Thank you. Uh, Dania, questions yeah, do you want to tackle it to round up? Yeah, well, we'll round this up. Um, <laughs> fact-checking in one minute. Um, now, I really appreciate that question because it's, it's really important. I mean, particularly given all the fake news out there right now um, and all of the things swirling around. Um, uh, in terms of fact-checking in Syria, it can be very difficult because you often are not, you don't have anybody on the ground there. You're just collecting kind of information from bits and things like that. Um, so we're quite cautious and we try to um, you know, know, know what the sources of information um, and if we don't, if we're not sure of something, we try to be very explicit in the writing. So for example, I was working on a story once about um, prisoners in an Aleppo prison and they were WhatsApping with me, but I couldn't 100% confirm that those people were actually in a prison. They even sent me you know, pictures of themselves in the prison. I said, but 
you know, how do we know this? So we were very clear in the story. We could not, you know, independently confirm that this is true. So being very clear about what you know and what you don't know in the copy is, is it's not fact-checking per se, but I guess it's what you do when you can't. And in Iraq, we have somebody on the ground there. Um, so we're constantly in touch with her when she sends in a story. We send her back a draft with a sea of red. How do you know that? How do you know that? Why do you know that? And it gets annoying, but that's our job. So, yeah, that's, that's what we do. Thank you, Danny. We've covered a lot of ground tonight in a short time. Um, thank you all very much for coming out tonight. Thank you for all your questions. It's great to see you all here tonight. Um, do please stay in touch with Brismas. Make use of us, as I said earlier. And please stay on, if you can, for the reception outside afterwards now. But most of all, I'd like to say a very huge thank you to Anna, to Mina, to Courtney, to Dania, and to Nick. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. <laughs>